Well, it's good to be back. Appreciate Jeremy preaching last week, John leading the music, Jeremiah leading the Two Rivers uh, Institute class, and Steve leading uh, Maryland, and, and all of you guys uh, talking about your Israel trip and so forth on Wednesday nights. Appreciate all the work everybody did, and we had a nice vacation, but it's always good to be back, so good to be back here. We're returning this morning to our study through Psalm 119. Uh, today we're looking at the 20th stanza. That's verses 153 through 160. There's uh, several things that we keep in mind as we explore these verses, things that show up all through the psalm. First is this, it's obvious throughout the psalm that the psalmist is living in a place, he's living in a culture that is, that is hostile toward him because it is hostile toward his faith. And that hostility is once again uh, emphasized in the stanza we're looking at this morning. Second, one of the main tools that the psalmist uses to enable him to persevere in this hostile culture is prayer. I mean, the whole psalm is an example of us taking every concern to the Lord in prayer and uh, trusting that he will come to our aid to help us. Prayer is a key aspect of this stanza as well. And then thirdly, the psalmist is absolutely dependent on the word of God to give him insight, to give him wisdom, to give him encouragement, to give him help. And uh, actually, each one of the eight verses in this stanza includes a reference to the scriptures, and you find that all through this psalm. <clears throat> now, also, as we come to the end of Psalm 119, we find the psalmist really becoming um, increasingly intense as he pours out his heart to the Lord. Uh, because of what's going on around him. And we see that from the very beginning of this stanza. Let me read for you Psalm 119, verse 153 to 160. <clears throat> Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The prayer for the Lord to revive the psalmist shows up three times in this stanza. And that really helps us to see multiple challenges, multiple circumstances in life that can lead us to ask for the Lord to revive us, to give us help. We're going to look at this psalm in three sections. The first is going to be verses 153 to 155. And from that we see the need to be revived when we're dealing with difficult and long-standing afflictions. Second is in verses 156 to 158, and there we see the need to be revived when we're face, facing treacherous schemes uh, from evil men. And then third, verses 159 to 160, we see the need to be revived so that we can continue to grow in our love for the Lord, no matter what our circumstances might be. The word translated revive me in the New American Standard that I'm using is sometimes rendered also in other versions as quicken me or give me life. It speaks of the need for the Lord to renew or to stir up 
the spiritual life of a believer, um, the spiritual life that the believer actually already has in Christ. There's a quote on your outline from Nathaniel Vincent, which is helpful in this regard. He says, as he has given you life, as he has given you life, so he is ready to give it more and more abundantly. This will make you live for him and be unweariedly active for him. Now, Vincent is speaking of these pleas for revival that show up in this stanza in particular, and you can see he's comparing that to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So if you're a Christian, the Lord has given you new life in Jesus Christ. By nature, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. No one truly seeks after God on their own, but God in his grace causes us to see our sin. He calls us to see that we stand under the wrath of God as sinners, but he also calls us to see Jesus Christ as the hope for our salvation. He grants us the ability to turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ for salvation. All believers, therefore, are born again. They all have new life in Christ. But at the same time, we can all easily get discouraged. We can feel overwhelmed sometimes. Our desire for the Lord can sometimes falter. We can give ourselves over to sin and temptation in various ways. The Lord has most definitely given new life to every believer, and he's promised to cause that life to more and more increase as far as an an, an abundancy is concerned. And as Vincent says, it enables us to live for the Lord and to be unwearied as we serve him. We all find ourselves in need of being revived at times. The psalmist illustrates the ongoing need for personal revival by repeating that prayer, that prayer, Lord revive me, three times in this stanza. But overall, a prayer for life or a prayer for revival shows up 11 times in this psalm. So we praise God for the times that he has shown us encouragement, that, he, that he's actually helped us, he's actually stirred us up. Most of us have, have testimonies of that, of the Lord's help. But we don't just need that divine help once. We need it over and over and over and over again. Um, That's why the psalmist keeps asking for it over and over and over again. There's renewed struggles, renewed problems, renewed issues. I continue to need for you to revive me. He needed ongoing help. So do I. So do you. In verses 153 to 155, we see one of the situations that puts us in need of being revived by the Lord. Let me read those verses for you again. He says, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. So the first main point on your outline is this. Believers need to be revived by the Lord as they deal with long-standing afflictions. As we note in these final three stanzas that we're looking at, uh, this one and there'll be two more following this, in these final three stanzas, the psalmist's prayers for God's help are becoming more intense, more desperate, so to speak. He's clearly under a lot of stress. His situation is bad and it keeps getting worse. Um, There is no light 
at the end of the tunnel as far as he can see. And you can just see the desperation and uh, and the way he uses what you might call imperative directives in this prayer eight different times in this particular stanza. Five of them come in the first two verses. He says this, look at my affliction, rescue me, plead my cause, redeem me, revive me. I mean, you can just kind of feel the intensity of the affliction as that he's enduring by the intensity of his prayers, right from the very beginning of this stanza. As you know, Psalm 119 has 176 verses. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And the fact that the psalmist is dealing with a lot of pressure shows up early in this psalm, and as we said, intensifies as it gets toward the end. I mean, it keeps showing up. The fact that it keeps showing up gives the impression that this, he's dealing with long-standing afflictions. These are, they're going on for a while. Some of us know, I mean, there's trials that we endure that maybe are short-lived. Can be very intense, but maybe they're short-lived. Other trials can, well, they can vary in levels of intensity, but some can last for a long time, maybe even your whole life. And that puts us in a situation of needing to be revived over and over and over again because of the intensity of the trials that we deal with. So as the psalmist begins his 20th stanza, we see in verse 53, this next point, believers can go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to look closely at what troubles them and to intervene, to intervene on their behalf. He begins by directing the Lord to look upon my afflictions. I mean, you can, there's a confidence, there's a, there's a uh, comfort that he has going to the Lord and being very direct, saying, look, look at my afflictions. Look what's taking place in my life. He's asking the Lord to give personal attention to the hardships that he's going through. And the next part of that sentence tells us what he wants the Lord to do. Look upon my affliction and rescue me. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, it's like he's saying, look into my grief and see whether I don't need to be delivered. <clears throat> God cares for his people. But we can say more than that. God cares for his people in very individual and personal ways. The psalmist says, look upon my affliction. Look upon my affliction. Pay close attention to the things that I am dealing with, that I'm enduring. And he also adds that even in the midst of this affliction, he does not forget God's law. He's seeking to be faithful to the Lord even when it's hard, but he needs more help from the Lord. Sometimes the afflictions that we go through, we really have little or no control over. There are things that just happen. We're seeking to follow the Lord. Hard things happen. We live in a fallen world, and trials are going to be part of it. That's a rea the reality. There are other times when the afflictions that we go through are because of our own sin, our own selfishness, our own stupidity. I thought about this recently when I was reading through Psalm 151 um, within the last week or two. And in that psalm, David was going through a very hard time. One of the worst 
chapters of his life. But he was going through that time because of his own sin. Psalm 51, David is confessing to the Lord his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his sin of the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. In one sense, like he says here, I do not forget your law. In one sense, he didn't forget God's law because it was God's law that defined very clearly how horrible his sins were. In verse 153, the psalmist is praying for the Lord to rescue him. In verse 154, he prays about a way that that rescue can be secured. He's calling on the Lord to be his advocate. <clears throat> One thing I was thinking about as I was trying to think through these verses is, how is it that the Lord rescues? I'm not sure exactly what the psalmist had in mind, but there's different ways God can rescue when you think about situations that we're in. Um, in his providence, he can remove the people that are causing the affliction if it's being caused by people. Or he can cause their plans to fail and to come back on their own head. Or if it's a physical affliction, the Lord can bring healing. But he can also give his child strength to endure whatever trial that they're facing. That's a rescue as well. However the rescue occurs, it's the Lord who brings it about. But there's something else going on here. The word for redeem me here in verse 154 is the Hebrew word goel. It's the Hebrew word used to speak of the kinsman redeemer spoken of in the law of Moses. Interesting enough, Jeremy uh, spoke of this last week when he was preaching about the redemption described in Titus chapter 2. Well, here in Psalm 119, it's used here as well. The kinsman redeemer was used of a person's nearest relative at a particular time. They were responsible to stand up for their nearest relative to maintain their rights, especially when they were in need. The kinsman redeemer was to rescue his kin from difficulty or from danger. Well, the psalmist is asking the Lord to be his advocate, to be his redeemer. This, of course, is a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ. He was our kinsman in the sense that he took on human flesh. He became man so he could suffer and die as a man for, for men. He was our kinsman in that sense, and he also paid the price for our greatest danger, our sin. And as our resurrected Savior, he continues to serve as our great high priest who lives to make intercession, to be the advocate for us before the Lord, before the Father. No matter who you are or what your situation is, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then he is constantly pleading your cause. You have an advocate that you can trust. You have an advocate who always prays what is best for you. You have an advocate whose prayers are always heard and answered. And it's in that context that the psalmist also said, prays then, revive me according to your word. So when you're dealing with these long-standing afflictions, you need to be regularly revived. You need to know the life of Christ in a truly abundant way. Our soul is the very center of everything that we are. 
And so within our soul, we find ourselves needing more love. We need more grace. We need more faith. We need more strength. We need more courage. That's what we're given when the Lord revives us. Well, as the psalmist prays these very intense prayers, he then takes a moment to call to mind the terrible plight of the wicked. They don't have the same opportunity he has to have an advocate. So he calls about their plight. Look at 155 in the beginning of 156. His salvation is far from the wicked. They do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. So right after making it clear that salvation is far from the wicked, the psalmist praises God for his great mercies. So this is a reminder of our next point. Believers recognize that apart from God's mercies, there is no salvation for either themselves or for others. As the psalmist makes clear in the following verses, his affliction has been brought on by those who are wicked, as he describes them. They are people who are far from salvation. They don't even think they need salvation. In their lives, they continue down a path that is filled with unbelief, with sinful actions, a rejection of the one true God. So the psalmist has every reason to think that their cruel treatment of him is going to continue. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. And that's why I think it's important to connect verse 156 with 155. The wicked have no hope for salvation in themselves. But God's mercies are great. In fact, there is no person in the world who is worthy of God's salvation. We all need to be saved from sin and from judgment. But we don't deserve to be saved. It's only by God's mercy that any person has salvation for themselves. If you're a Christian, it's not because you're any better than anyone else. If you're a Christian, it's because God has been merciful to you. He has caused you to see your sin and to see Christ as your Savior. Salvation is of the Lord, and he is the God of great mercies. That's what gives us hope. And be reminded of that gospel hope is something, one of the things, one of the key things God uses to revive our hearts. When verses 156 156 through 158, we see the psalmist going into some detail about the people who were causing this affliction in his life. Just look what he says there. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. So our second main point is this. Believers need to be revived by the Lord as they face the treacherous schemes of those who have rejected the one true God. So in these verses, the psalmist goes into some detail about the people who were scheming against him. He says they're persecutors, they're adversaries, they are treacherous people. And it's in that context that he once again says, Lord, revive me. He says in verse 156, Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. So even when, they, even when, when faced with the treacherous schemes of those who have rejected the one true God, we see this next point. Even in that, in that scenario, believers can be confident of God's divine help 
because it's promised in his word. As we noted, verse 156 begins by saying, Great are your mercies, O Lord. I think it's important to note that the word for mercy here is plural. God's mercies are great for at least two reasons, according to this one. First, because they're God's mercies. That's why they're great. And secondly, because they're mercies of all sorts. A wide variety of mercies. One aspect of his mercies is salvation mercies. That's what we've just been talking about. It's his saving mercy in which that is the only hope wicked people, including us, have for salvation. That would include the mercy of forgiveness of sins, the mercy of being declared innocent before God when according to his justice we're actually guilty. It would include the mercy of eternal life. Another aspect of his mercies, plural, is the mercy that gives divine help in all manner of afflictions. It's the mercy that God gives his life more abundantly to enable us to live for him regardless of the trials that we're enduring. So since God is a God of great mercies, he can pray, revive me according to your ordinances. Earlier I mentioned David and uh, the affliction he was enduring because of his own sin and he was, that he was taking to the Lord in Psalm 51. He confessed his sin. He trusted the Lord to wash him, that he would be whiter than snow. That is a great mercy. I mean, if God doesn't wash us from our sin, we have no hope. But he came, went to the Lord and, was, and took, his, took his sin to the Lord, trusting him to wash him whiter than snow. Well, later in the psalm, I want to read this to you. David, using different terms, is asking for God to revive him. Here's what Psalm 51, 10 to 13 says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Then later he says, O Lord, open my mouth, that my open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. Like I said, he doesn't use the word revive me there, but that's exactly what he's praying for. He's in a descriptive way asking God to revive him. I mean, he's under conviction of sin for his horrible, horrible sins that are going to have tremendous consequences in his life, in his family's life, and in the life of his nation. And he needs help. And he's asking God to help him. Does he deserve to have the joy of his salvation restored? No, he doesn't. But the only way he can get it is through the mercies of God. And God delights in showing mercy. Here back in Psalm 119, verse 154 and 156, the psalmist prays for the Lord, Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your ordinances. Well, there's many places we could go to in the scripture to see instances of God reviving his servants. Psalm 51 is one of them. So believers can be confident of God's divine help because it is promised in his word. 
Now, with the situation the psalmist was in, he most definitely needed God's reviving work in his life. So look at verses 157 and 158 again. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. So we see from this our next point. With God's divine help, believers can recognize the dangerous, the dangerous situation they are in, and yet continue to honor the Lord with their lives. The psalmist is having to deal with people who are persecuting him for his faith. He is having to deal with people who are his adversaries. They are harassing and oppressing him because he serves the one true God. He has also described them as being treacherous. They are deceptive. They do not act in good faith. They are people who cannot be trusted. They promise one thing but have no intention of keeping their word. Someone who is treacherous is someone that you cannot depend on at all, and if you do depend on them, it's going to be bad news. It's going to be bad. That's a hard place to be in. And this was not just isolated events in the psalmist's life. In verse 157, he says there were many persecutors. He says there were many adversaries. It wasn't just one or two people who were, didn't like him. There were lots and lots who were against him. No wonder he's feeling desperation before God. But there is much encouragement here as well. The beginning I want of, of, of verse 156 that we've already noted, that's intended to be parallel to the beginning of verse 157. 156, great are your mercies, O Lord. 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. The two phrases are parallel and meant to go together. It's because of great mercies, God's great mercies, the psalmist can think rightly of his many adversaries. God's great mercies trump his many adversaries. It's because of God's great mercies that the Lord has revived his soul to enable him to persevere under persecution in a way that really honored the Lord. Psalm 157 also tells us that even in this terrible situation, I don't turn aside from your testimonies. So God's reviving mercies make that possible. He knows that if he would stop honoring God's word in his life, his adversaries would probably back off. But it's more important to him to honor the Lord than to be accepted by treacherous people who do not accept or keep God's word. It's very likely here also that these treacherous ones are people who profess to be committed to the Lord themselves. It's one thing when unbelievers turn away from the word of God. That's to be expected. But when people who profess to be Christians do that, they turn away from the Lord and from his word, that's much worse. He says that he loathed them. <laughs> Other ways that can be translated, it made him sick to his stomach. They filled him with disgust. These were people who were willfully defiant and rebellious. They know better. Now, this is not the psalmist being self-righteous. 
I mean, he knows how dependent he is on the mercies of God. So he's not blowing himself up as he's some way better than them. He knows he's a man of need. That's why he keeps praying for, revive me, revive me. I need help. I need help. But he is disgusted because these professed believers are living in ways that are dishonoring to the Lord they profess to believe in, his Lord. It says in verse 158 that he's sickened by them because they don't keep God's word. It's God's honor that's driving him here. I think it can rightly be called righteous indignation that he's dealing with, that he's feeling. So we see here also then that God will revive his people when they are facing treacherous schemes of those who are dishonoring the one true God. Well, that brings us to our final main point, which we see in verse 159 to 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. This is something of a summary request, you might call it, as the psalmist considers moving forward in his walk with the Lord. So our third point is this. Believers need to be revived by the Lord so they can, can, can grow in their life for the Lord and for his word. So in, in verse 159, the psalmist moves away from talking about the treacherous lives of professed believers to talking about his own life. This is the third time in the stanza the psalmist has, has spoken of beholding or considering something carefully. In verse 153, he was asking the Lord to carefully consider his own affliction and rescue him. Verse 158, he's, he's beholding these treacherous people and being sickened by them. Verse 159, he asked the Lord to give close attention to his own life now. He doesn't want to use great afflictions and dangerous trials as an excuse to grow lukewarm in his spiritual life. He wants his life to be a testimony of God's grace. So we see here, our next point, believers can trust the Lord to mercifully enable them to live with integrity no matter how difficult the challenge. He says, consider how I love your precepts. Again, from Spurgeon, he says, he says, at first, the psalmist was saying, consider my affliction. Now he's saying, consider my affection, my affection for the Lord. He had a great love for the precepts of God because he had a great love for God himself. And this is the context for why he was so grieved at what he saw in the lives of professed believers who were compromising the faith. Great trials and pressure from the culture should not be an excuse for turning our backs on the Lord. And in this context, once again, the psalmist asked the Lord to revive him. He needs the Lord to continue to grow in his love for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon actually characterized this prayer like this. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, this one's on your outline, this quote. He says, it's like the psalmist is praying this. Quicken me. Quicken me that I may outlive the blows of my enemies, the faintness of my faith, and the swooning of my sorrow. He needs the Lord's reviving work to persevere in persecution. He needs the Lord's reviving work when his faith feels weak and small. He needs the Lord's reviving work when he's full of sorrow at what he sees going on around him. 
And the psalmist is trusting the Lord to quicken him based on what? Based on the Lord's loving kindness. We've looked at this word multiple times. Loving kindness speaks of God's kindness, God's mercy that comes based on his commitment, on his covenant commitment to his people. So because of God's covenant, he is confident the Lord will revive him with this kindness, with these mercies, so that he can live with integrity no matter what his challenges might be. He does the same for you. He does the same for me if we are his children. This is a great promise that, we, that God will revive us according to his loving kindness. The psalmist closes this stanza with a, really with a confession of faith. Psalm 160, a great confession of faith. He's saying, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. I mean, this is a beautiful, important, foundational confession. And it's based on this confession of faith that we see our final point. Believers remind themselves of the never-changing foundation, the never-changing foundation they have in the everlasting truth of God's word. This is why knowing what you believe is so important. Because everything in our life can be full of pain, trial, sorrow, but you know the truth, and the truth doesn't change. It is something you can build on. Everything in the culture may be characterized by unbelief and rebellion to the Lord, but you know the truth, and the truth doesn't change. What the psalmist confesses is the truth of God's word. He says, the sum of your word is truth. In other words, the sum or the totality of the word of God is truth. It is the scriptures that tell us, for example, of God's creation of the world. That's truth. It's the scriptures that tell us that God created men, male and female, in his own image. That's truth. It's the scriptures that tells us of our sin and of our need. It's the scriptures that tell us of the only one who can save us from our sin. It's the scriptures that tell us of the triune God who is worthy of our praise and worship. The sum, the totality of God's word is truth. I mean, that's such an important foundation to have. Well, in conjunction with that, the psalmist also confesses that every one of God's righteous ordinances are everlasting. Everlasting. The scriptures are inspired by God, so they are authoritative and infallible. That does not change from generation to generation to generation. When people tell you, like I've been told before, that certain parts of the scripture cannot be trusted as a true word of God, we know they're wrong. They are wrong. There's a lot of hope in this. I'm going to close this morning with reading Jesus' testimony on this same issue, basically. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Well, we want to thank you for your word. 
we thank you for one of, one of your mercies is the fact that we even have the scriptures so that we can read them and understand them, that they've been preserved for us down through uh, centuries so that we have Bibles in our hands or on our, or, or on our phones, whatever it might be. We have access to your word in, in a language we can understand. Thank you for that mercy. What a mercy that is. Not just that we have the word, but we can read it and understand it and learn and study it. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of the psalmist in this particular part of your word who was going through really difficult times like we do sometimes. But we see his example of how he dealt with what was going on in his life, what was going on in the culture around him, and just knowing he needed constantly to be revived and encouraged and helped by you. And thank you, Lord, for the things that he claims. They're the same thing, kind of things that we can claim. And trust you to revive us when we were going through really difficult and hard times. We regularly need your help. We know that. None of us are strong enough on our own to deal with everything that comes. We blow it in so many ways. And like David, oftentimes it's our own stupidity, our own sin that causes our affliction to come. But thank you for what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf to pay for that sin, to bring us into a right relationship with you, and to continue to be our advocate. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us as we deal with the things that are in our particular life situations. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, that I would encourage you to receive him. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I have not measured up. I have blown it in so many ways. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came to save. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.